our main text for this morning will be 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to give you a little bit of context. Um, we don't know for certain who wrote um, the Johannine epistles. We think it might have been John the disciple, but it could have been another John. Either way, um, these letters have a strong resemblance to um, the Johannine Gospel, the Gospel of John. And so um, whether or not it was written by the same person, um, there were some striking similarities, and it leads us to wonder maybe if it wasn't the same person, maybe it was a student of that person, uh, or maybe it was someone who was intentionally trying to write in the same vein as the Apostle John. And so as we look at this text, we're going to keep in mind um, some of those stylistic and, and thematic elements from John's Gospel. So if you haven't um, found 1 John 2, 15 through 17, as I tell my students, you probably weren't trying. Um, so we're going to go ahead and look at that verse together. He writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the desires of the world, the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are passing away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. This is the word of God. So, uh, what does this mean? The first thing that um, jumped out to me as I was preparing for camp is, well, the world's greatest, most popular memory verse, John 3.16. If God so loved the world in John 3.16, then why um, in this other Johannine text uh, are we being told not to love the world? If God did it, then why are we not? If we're supposed to imitate God in so many areas, why, why does it seem like we're not supposed to here? Well, the underlying principle is that the authors of these texts had different um, concepts in mind when they use the word, the world. They're talking about different things. They're using the same Greek word, so we know um, that there's some underlying similarities, but they're using it in different ways. That word, world, is a Greek word that we're all familiar with. It's the word cosmos, cosmos or cosmos. Um, and it talks about the order, the fabric of, of creation and um, the inhabitants of it. So essentially, it's God's creation and the creatures in it. But, so when, when God's uh, when John's gospel says, God so loved the world, it's saying that God so cherished his creation. He so cherished the creatures and the people that lived in it that he gave his only son. But when this letter, 1 John, says um, to not love the world, it's talking about a very different kind of cosmos, different kind of order. It's talking about the ways that we as um, sinful people sometimes reorder or disorder creation as God intended it. And so we take what was good, we take what God loves, and we turn it into something that God hates because it's not good. So when we're talking about things that God hates, we're, we're talking about things that are not as they should be. God only hates what he knows is not good. And so when we say do not love the world, we're saying don't buy into the ways that the world works. Don't buy into the ways that the world has taken God's creation and twisted it and put it out of order. Put the first things last and the last things maybe first and, and gotten it all 
mixed up. Don't buy into the ways that people in the world mistreat other people. If you're going to love the world the way that God did in John 3.16, you have to love the way that God loves. This is very different than the love of the world that mistreats people and abuses them. And we're not left to fend for ourselves to define uh, what it looks like to love the world. In fact, he gives us three examples, and that's what we're going to dive into now. He says that the things of this world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, if you grew up in church and you memorize scripture, those are probably phrases that are very familiar to you, but very rarely do we stop and think about what they mean, what he's actually talking about. And so uh, what I want to propose to you is, is some definitions for those phrases, and that will help us think about uh, what John's saying. So first of all, the lust of the flesh. Lust is a word that we often use to, to talk strictly about sexual desire or wrong sexual desire, but it's much more than that. It's, it's a word that's used to talk about a wrong desire for comfort and pleasure, but also um, wealth and power and entertainment. And so the lust of the flesh is, is talking about a lifestyle of ordering our lives around satisfying the desires of our physical bodies without regard for what's good for us, what's good for others, and what's good for God's creation. So God created the world and it's good, which means that all of those things, sexual desire, entertainment, power, wealth, they all come from God and they're all good. But we were never meant to live our lives seeking those things as, as the place where life is found. And certainly not in places that God did not intend for them to be found. We, we're not supposed to seek wealth and entertainment and pleasure in, in areas that God says, no, you're not going to find wealth there. You're not going to find pleasure there. I didn't design it to work that way. He knows how he made creation and he knows where those things are found. When we talk about the lust of the eyes, we're not really talking about something that's much different. The distinction is that it's taking ourselves in, in our imaginations and our eyes where we're unwilling to go physically. It's ordering our lives around satisfying the desires of our eyes without regard for what's good for us, others, or the rest of God's creation. This means that we're trying to derive pleasure and comfort and wealth and power and entertainment by using our eyes in ways that objectify and degrade others, treating as beautiful what God says is ugly, treating as cheap what God says is precious, treating as entertaining what God says is violent and abusive. Again, it's just like the lust of the flesh, except we use our eyes and imaginations to seek satisfaction where our own bodily experience cannot take us or where we're unwilling to go. And Jesus talked about that in his Sermon on the Mount. He said that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying that it's, it's not just about what you actually do, it's about what you're willing to do or what you wish you could do. I love um, the lyrics from a song by Reliant K called Forgiven. It goes like this. We think the thoughts whether or not we see them through. God doesn't just care about whether we've actually committed adultery or committed murder or committed theft. What he cares about is whether we'd watch it or whether we'd commit it in our heart and our imaginations. And finally, um, the pride of life. It's establishing our identity and value by what we know 
what we have or the things we do. It's a way of living that denies practically that we need God. This means living as though our education, our possessions, or our occupation can give us life and remove our need for God. And so when the author of 1 John is talking about these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he's talking about ways of living apart from God, ways that call things good that God says, that's not good. I know what good is. I made it. That's not what I made. That's not the way I intended it. Or ways that say, God, I don't need you because he knows that we do. He knows that that's the only place where life is found. And uh, if you've been, if you're one of my students and you're in my Sunday school class, you know that um, I like to bring up the story of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's perhaps a story I bring up the most. And in that story, Eve sees the fruit in the tree and, and she takes it for three reasons. First of all, it looks good for food. It looks like it's going to satisfy her body. Second of all, it looks pleasing to the eye. It just looks good. It makes her happy when she sees it. And third of all, uh, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And I think those are the very three things that John is talking about in this text. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve took the fruit because she thought it was her, her shortcut to wisdom. She thought it was her shortcut to a life apart from God. And what's, what's sad is that she lived out exactly what John's talking about. He says that those who live this way, those who pursue the things of the world, will, not, will pass away because those things pass away. And that's what happened for Adam and Eve. They took the fruit and they passed away, literally and figuratively. And so my challenge to our students and my challenge to you is in many ways the same. Love God's creation. Be like God in John 3.16 and love his creation, but do so in ways that aren't aimed at satisfying your bodily and visual desires, fueling your pride, or diminishing your sense of dependence upon God. Do so as an expression for, of your love for God as the creator and don't become attached to sinful and human ways of disordering what God has ordered and abusing what God has called good. Now at camp, um, we didn't always get into the specifics, at least I didn't get into the specifics of, of maybe some of the ways that this challenges uh, our everyday way of lit life. Um, we left that open-ended and intentionally so because those are things that God's spirit should be speaking and, and not me. But this has implications for what, what our life looks like every day. It has implications for the kind of media we consume. It has implications for the way we treat people that we encounter, people we're in close relationship with. It has implications for the shows we watch, the music we listen to, the books we read. And it has implication for um, the kind of persona or image of ourselves that we project. I'm not going to tell anyone you shouldn't be watching that show, at least not from a platform. That, that's something to be done in relationship. But the Holy Spirit has implications for that. And over the last two years, uh, over the last year, that's something that's been really um, profound for me, is that I realized, hey, this was entertaining at first. This seemed good at first. This seemed innocent at first. But I realized that there's something worldly about it. And I don't mean that the world is bad. 
but that the world often twists what God has called good. And so there were things that I enjoyed once that I realized, hey, that treats as, as good what God says is ugly. That treats as cheap and inexpensive what God says is precious and valuable. That treats as entertaining what God says is violent and abusive. And so I've had to, to look at myself and say, who do I love here? Do I love myself? Do I love the things of this world, the things that make me feel good, that appear, appeal to my, my lust of my flesh or my lust of my eyes or to the pride of my life? Or do I love God? Because if I do love God, I'll do his will. And that sounds um, perhaps really daunting at first. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, in a few minutes about maybe why it's not. But if I do the will of God, Scripture tells me I'll live forever. Now, it doesn't mean that I'll be breathing forever on this earth, but it means that I'll live an eternal kind of life. The ultimate reason that we should not love the world and become attached to the world in the ways that 1 John is talking about is that it will not last. But loving God by living for him and doing his will from an undivided heart will last forever and where, is where real life is found. And so while we were at camp, I talked about three reasons that we should love God with this undivided kind of love. First of all, um, if you're taking notes, it's for the honor of God. When we love God, it's never uh, first and foremost about ourselves. It's about God and his glory. If we really recognize what God's done for us, the first desire of our lives should be to bring him glory, to bring him honor. In 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And he says, why? In order that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God didn't call us out of darkness into his wonderful light just to give us freedom, right? That's a huge part of it, but it's not all of it. He wanted, he did that for his own glory. He did that so that we can tell others about it so that they too can experience freedom and life. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The truth is, if you do not love the world, if you choose to love the way that God loves, you're going to stick out. And you know what? They're going to judge you for it because they realize that you look different. They realize that you obviously don't approve of the ways that they love, which isn't really love at all. But he says, live such good lives. This isn't, this isn't about saying, hey, I'm better than you. You're all going to suffer. You're all going to die. You're horrible people. It's not about that. He's saying, live such good lives that even if even though they slander you, even though they persecute you, eventually they'll see there's something different. There's something different about the way that they love. And they will glorify and praise God when he visits us. Peter's encouraging us that by our way of life, we can be an example to the rest of the world. By being different, 
we can show the world what love truly looks like and they can experience a love that they haven't. The second reason, and I've already alluded to this, is to love God wholeheartedly is for the good of other people. The truth is you can't love God without loving the person next to you who is an image of God. What I told our students is that it would be like vandalizing a sculpture of someone and then when you, you see them at a meet and greet, you, you tell them how much a fan you are of their work to their face and you think you mean it. You can't do that. You can't dishonor someone and then simultaneously honor them. And that's what people are. They're images of God. You can't say you love God if you dishonor the person next to you, however flawed they are, that's supposed to be an image or a representative of him to you. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 22. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, what Terry just quoted earlier this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Leave it to Jesus that when you ask him what's the greatest commandment, he gives you two. And the reason he gives us two is because they're really the same commandment. If you want to love God wholeheartedly, you also have to love his people wholeheartedly. We have to love others as ourselves. And even greater than that, Jesus says, now love as I have loved you. That's a standard that the world will not set. The world says, well, don't do unto others the things that you wish they wouldn't do to you. And then we come across Confucius, and Confucius says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. But Jesus goes even further and he says, you know what? Love others the way I have loved you. And that's a whole different standard. That's a whole different standard because none of us have ever loved fully that way. No greater love is there than he who gives his life for his friends. You see, undivided living is not a dichotomy between loving God and loving people. And, and maybe that's a false dichotomy we, we suspect when we, when we hear the words, don't love the world. But John's not talking about people. He's talking about the twisted ways that we use people. He's talking about um, the, the misplaced priorities in the world. The problem is that we tend to let our appreciations and affections and attachments for disordered ways of inhabiting God's creation crowd out our love for the inhabitants of God's creation. We find it all too easy not to love. Finally, what I wanted to impress upon our students, and hopefully it's what you'll hear me say today, and it's, it's perhaps the least important of the three, because loving God is, is never ultimately about us. It's about Him. But loving God will result in our greatest joy. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And this isn't a contractual kind of love. What Paul is saying in Romans 8.28 is not, hey, if you love God wholeheartedly, everything will work out okay for you. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, start loving God so that God can start blessing you. It's not how it works. The truth is, 
because God made the world, he ordered it in a way that he, he knows is good and he knows how it works. He sees all the consequences of our actions and he knows that when we love him with undivided hearts, things just work out well for us because he made it and he can see the end from the beginning and he knows the path that our choices will take us down. We're going with the fabric of the world he created as he created it. But when we choose sin, when we choose the things of the world, things are going to work out to our detriment because that's not how we created it to work. It's like when you get a new power tool or a new board game, you're going to find the most success. You're going to find the most pleasure in using the tool or playing the game if you follow the instructions. And it's not because the person selling you that just wants you to follow a bunch of rules. It's because he knows how it, it's made and he knows how it's supposed to work. He knows what will bring you satisfaction. And God is the same way. He's not arbitrary about this. He hasn't made up some rules and it's, it's this game of just following instructions to get certain rewards. No, he knows the fabric of the ordered world that he created. And he knows that if you live in those ways that he prescribes, it's going to turn out well for you. Something I, I shared with um, my students at the end of our week together that, that I hope will um, illuminate this. And, and for me, it's a personal example. So bear with me. Um, as some of you know, some of you may not know, um, my degree, my college degree is in music composition. I did not study ministry in college. I did not study the Bible um, in college per se. I did a lot of Bible study in college, but um, I studied music composition. So um, my bachelor diploma would tell you that I'm a composer. Um, and as a result, uh, as part of earning that diploma, um, something that I had to do was write about an hour and a half of original music um, for choirs, orchestras, um, percussion ensembles, and voice. Um, and as I uh, performed these, I couldn't do it alone. So I asked about, I think I, it ended up being like 35 of my friends to help me perform this music. Um, and what I found through that is I learned a little bit about honor. Um, as a composer, as a Christian composer, everything I write is supposed to honor God and bring glory to Him. Even instrumental music that I write is supposed to say, hey, do you hear the beauty in this music? That's what God is like to me. That's how beautiful God is to me. But from an academic or professional standpoint, those recitals, that performance, um, was, was designed or instituted to honor me as, as a composer, as a student. And so um, my friends that I got together to, to perform it, in a way, were honoring me by giving up their time, by agreeing to perform it for me. Um, and I, I learned what it is like to be honored. I don't know if I've ever felt so honored in my life because of the ways that they sacrifice their time and their energy um, to really to learn some pretty difficult music. I found out the more the more we got into it that it was very difficult. But they did something else too. By accurately performing um, the music that was written in their scores and by following my, my patterns and cues as I directed, it made it possible for others in the room to experience the beauty of what I had imagined. If, if I did not have them um, to help me then the audience would have never known the beauty that was represented on the, the pretty little black dots on the page, as my friend likes to call it. 
Um, and even when they didn't do it perfectly, even when things got muddy and, and out of sync, um, I was still honored because, first of all, I knew they were trying, but even those in the audience could say, you know what, I know that doesn't sound quite right, but I bet the composer had something really beautiful in mind, and I bet it's just really hard to pull off. I bet it's just really difficult, and those performers are showing how much they care about the composer by giving it their all. They must really care about the composer. They're trying really hard to get it right, and they believe very much in what they're singing and what they're playing. And you know what? You'd think that all of the rehearsals and all the trying to learn music they maybe didn't understand uh, would get tedious and boring. And at times I was afraid that it would. I was, at times I was afraid they'd throw in the towel and be like, this is too hard, we can't do it. But the more we rehearsed, eventually things started to click and it started coming together. And that was the coolest moment for me because I realized that they were enjoying the process and they were enjoying and appreciating the music that I'd written. They didn't always know if they'd get it right. And in fact, they were worried they'd get it right. They wouldn't get it right. They were worried that they'd let me down. Um, we'd, pa we'd rehearse a passage maybe 10 times and they'd still mess it up. And they, they knew they'd mess it up. I'm not just saying that. Um, but eventually those things clicked and I got to see their joy as they learned it. And like, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. And nothing gave me more joy as the composer in hearing that. But some of my friends said, you know what? I love you, man, but I'm too busy for this. I've got other things going on. Um, this is more than I signed up for. I'm out. And they didn't participate. And uh, they stopped coming to rehearsals. And some of them didn't even show up um, to the, the final product. And to be perfectly honest and vulnerable with you, that was sad. That was sad for me. That was something I had to work through. But it wasn't sad for me because, wow, my friend didn't want to be part of my concert. It wasn't sad for me um, because I felt rejected. It was sad for me because they never got to experience the joy that my other friends did. They never got to experience the beauty of the music that I'd prepared, hoping that they'd be able to enjoy. And it, was not, it wasn't sad because I, I wasn't honored by them. Because in all reality, I don't need to be honored. I don't. There's not much to honor right here. And I had 32 other friends who already were honoring me, even though I didn't deserve it. What was sad was that they never got to experience the joy and the beauty of what I'd imagined, or the joy of sharing it with others. And so what I want to impress upon you today is that we have a composer. I'm not just talking about me. We have a composer. We have his score. And we have the spirit who, who gives us breath to sing. And what I want to impress upon you is that the composer is most honored when we faithfully read his score, when we try to accurately perform it. And it's not because he just really delights in, in making really hard things for us to try to do. It's not that. In fact, his word tells us that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's not supposed to be wearisome. It's not supposed to, to wear us out. He's honored when we follow, the conductor is honored when we follow his example, his cues. The breath, the spirit within us is honored when we use it to create beauty and order in a world that's become ugly and disordered. 
when we earnestly follow the spiritual pitches and rhythms that he gives us, we invite a dying world to experience the beauty that the composer imagined before the creation of the world, even eternal life. And if you do it, if you study the score, if you study his word, if you try to follow the pitches and rhythms, knowing how much he loves you already, knowing how much he's already done to save you, knowing that you're free, you'll find joy in that. It's not going to become tiring and wearisome. It's going to give you life. It's going to give you energy. That's why the psalmist says, I will run in the path of your commands for you've set my heart free. They're not supposed to be burdensome. Learning the score and practicing with other people is what we do on Sunday mornings. This is like a rehearsal and this can give us great joy and this can help us as we go out into the world to share the hope of the gospel and the beauty of the music that God created before the, before the world. But you can say, you know what? I love you, God, but I'm too busy for this. I got Netflix to watch tonight. I've got a game to catch tomorrow. And those are all good things. But if they take away from the love and affection you can give to God, or if they, they attach your heart to, to sinful ways of reordering what God has made good, then you're missing out. You can say, I've got other things going on. This is more than I signed up for. And you don't have to participate. You can try to love God with part of your heart, but it doesn't work. It never works. Jesus said that you can't love both God and money. In other words, you can't love both God and fill in the blank. You must become completely devoted to one and despise the other. You can't do both. God doesn't need to be honored. He deserves it. He deserves it, but he doesn't need it. God simply does not need anything. And he's got millions of others that are honoring him with their lives every single day. And so the question that we have is, will we join them? Will we honor him and experience the joy that he purposed for us? The joy of delighting in his beauty, the joy of sharing the message of the gospel with the world around us. We'll never satisfy ourselves. If you look for satisfaction in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, three things that maybe don't mean what you always thought they meant. If you, trace, if you look for satisfaction there, you'll never find it because you can never satisfy yourself. You were made to be satisfied by something greater. And the truth is, God wants you to be satisfied. That's what all this is about. It's not that God is controlling and manipulative and jealous and he only wants you to stick with him. It's because he knows that that's the only place you'll be satisfied. You are, you are greater than the things of this world because he made you in his image and he knows that he's the only thing that can satisfy you. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So don't let the world divide your heart and your affections. Don't buy the lie that you can love God half-heartedly or 95% heartedly. Only all of your heart will do. And so what I want to challenge all of you is wrestle with this. Ask God. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for five years. Maybe you've been walking with him for 50. Ask him, what gets in the way of me loving you with a whole heart? That's something I have to do every day. And some of you are better at it than I am. But will we do it together as a church? Because this wasn't just for our students. This is something we all wrestle with. And so my, my challenge to you is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. That's where real life is found. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for this time we have together in your word. God, as I've been hopefully faithful to present your word, would you send your spirit to guide us? Would your spirit remind us of your word? Would your spirit turn um, this message just from a time of looking in the mirror into a time of changing what we see in the mirror so that we would not forget what we look like? And that every day as we look in that mirror, the mirror of your word, hopefully by your grace and your power, we'll see more of you and less of us. And we'll see more of you and the person around us. And we'll love those around us better as we learn to love you. We will build our lives upon your love, Lord. It's in your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.